if if you're a Buddhist, by definition, you need to find yourself a guru or a teacher. And once you have a guru, there is a connection. You you follow whatever advice he will give you. Doesn't mean he will give you an advice because you know gurus tend to be mirrors. We call them. It's a mirror where you have to look at. And what he does usually, if you ask serious questions about yourself, he will just bounce it back towards you. Because Buddhist, you have you have to do your own work yourself. This is the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. Once giraffe heroes, we now call our participants guardians of humanity. Courageous, tireless workers for the common good. May each of them inspire you to follow in their tracks and contribute your own part to a just society and a healthy environment. My name is Dimi Dumortier and I welcome you to another episode of the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. With us today are Isa Luque Alvarez and Humphrey Maffey, two people living high up in the Alpujarras, the hills just before the Sierra Nevada in Andalusia. But living in a remote place doesn't mean they are no longer committed and my my are they committed. These are two people who have led, since their young years, a life committed to social justice and inner truth. And I would like to start with you, Isa. Am I correct if I say that the region where you now live is very familiar to you since you are Andalusian? Yeah, my family is from South Spain and um, I lived here for 20 years and after 20 years I left and I, I have been away for more than 30, 35 years. Come back here only 12 years ago. And were you born in the Sierra somewhere in the Alpujarras? No, no. Uh, my family is from Cadiz. It's more in the uh, west side. And I was born in a village called Merida, that is Extremadura, near Portugal. But both my father and mother, they were both Andalusians but not from the Alpujarra. And Humphrey, I reckon that you are not a native Spanish speaker? Not really, no. I'm French culture, French education, from an English father and a German mother, and born in Switzerland. And politically, I'm Swiss. And uh, both of you ended up meeting each other in India. That's right. And that was in the 1980s? 84. Humphrey, I read that uh, you were raised to be a teacher. Is that correct? No, I didn't grow up with my parents because they had some issues. Uh, I resulted in foster care most of my youth and definitely in full foster care from the age of nine. So nine to 15, nine to 14, I was up in the Alps in the, at the end of a valley, lost valley. And then I came back to Switzerland to start school because I started school very late So I went to school, then to university, but I have been a teacher for four years for uh, the last year of compulsory education, that means 15 years old, 
in, uh, in the local college, uh, teaching math and physics to people who were definitely not academic. So that was interesting. And then I, uh, I, did, uh, I became a specialized educator, meaning I was working with people who had social problems and legal problems. In other words, social misfits and uh, criminals, more or less. But from 15 to 20 years old. At 20, they're adults, so the state has nothing to say. But uh, it's, I, I didn't choose anything. It just happened. It just happened. I just slotted in. I had a facility because of my own upbringing with these kind of outsiders, if you want, of the social system. And it suited me perfectly because I had one foot completely outside of the system with them. And I had one side completely within the system because I was paid by the state to do that. So so you were a, a bridge figure. Nah, well, not really. But, you know, I, I had a foot in each side and I, it gave me a fantastic feel, uh, freedom feeling because I could do whatever I wanted and none of them would reject me because I belonged to both. But how, how does a social worker uh, working in France or Switzerland uh, end up in first in Lebanon and then in the Danakil region in Ethiopia? No, it's just because during at one point somebody suggested I go and work managing a village in Bangladesh that belonged to an NGO called Terre des Hommes, pretty famous actually. And um, so... I was hired to go to Bangladesh at the beginning, but they had an emergency and they needed somebody in Lebanon. And it was in 82, the worst year. So, uh, okay, I ended up in Beirut. But, you know, it's just, again, no choice of mine. Just It just so happened. I just slotted in. So I worked in Lebanon. Then I came back and then I went in an emergency Uh, mission in Ethiopia because of the drought and uh, we can discuss at length about the drought in 83 in Ethiopia and then after that uh, when I came back from Ethiopia uh, somebody suggested I go for them it's a friend who was had an NGO in Geneva and he asked me if I could go and deliver some medicine in uh, Sikkim in Rumtek and because It, there were 10 full tuberculosis cure that were given by a pharmaceutical in Baal. Uh, they, um, they didn't want to send it by post because obviously <laughs> somebody would make money out of it. So he asked me if I didn't mind because I had time to go and deliver it by hand. And did you realize, did you realize at that moment that the Sikkim region was very remote and recluse because I myself was in uh, 1988. I was in India and I tried to get into Sikkim. I was denied access there. Did you realize that it's a very difficult region to get in? You know, coming out of, coming out of Lebanon in 82, there is no such thing as a remote region. Uh, and uh, believing with seven armies controlling the whole of the country and me being in charge of the whole of the country for the NGO, I had to go everywhere. So, I mean, it, it didn't even come into my mind that it was remote. And the way I ended up there is something out of a film. But I still ended up in Rumtek. And, uh, you know, everything went perfectly well. Now, 
I was there was limited. I only got a visa for seven days, and I could extend it with three more days. But after ten days, I definitely had to leave Sikkim, because from the monastery uh, on one side of the valley, you could see China, because China was on the mountain range just across the valley. So obviously, uh, foreigners were not really welcome there. Now I have a British passport, so when I went to India in '84. I didn't need any visa or nothing. It was an open country for the Brits. And it's only while I was in India that the thing changed because of Amritsar and the Golden Temple. So suddenly you need a residence permit. But you were still controlled, to be honest, because uh, the the railway station in New Jalpaiguri was... It's, a, it's an army base. It's the biggest army base in the East, or it used to be. So obviously, uh, you're going through an army base. So <laughs> foreigners are kind of, oh, not foreigners, civilians are kind of monitored, to be polite. But, you know, it's like everything else. Uh, I have never have any problem in my life. I had incredible things that happened, but I never got hit. I never got... Uh, uh, how to say damage? I never got anything, and I went through it without any problem. So it's difficult to say that it's anything exceptional because I don't see it at all as exceptional. And you can say whatever you want. I don't think it is exceptional. You know, I mean, you learn. You learn when you live in in Lebanon uh, something called inshallah. So it either goes or it doesn't go. If it's your day, it's your day. If it's not your day, you can do whatever you want. And I have a social worker that worked for us in Lebanon who would cross Beirut twice a day. She was a Sunni and she went twice through two Shia districts and ended up in the Catholic one and never anything happened to her. And her father got shot the first day of the events. So, you know, you you just say, okay, you have to do something, you do it. If it goes, it goes. If it doesn't, if it doesn't go, it doesn't go. That's life, you know. That's a beautiful wisdom you share. In when when you were in Sikkim, you met with a man called Siturimpoche. Uh, Not at all. But some, somehow this this person links you to Isa. When I was in Sikkim, the head of the monastery was one of the four regions. The, the, the monastery belongs to the Kagyu lineage, and the head of the Kagyu lineage is Karmapa. 16 Karmapa passed away in Chicago, in the States. So there, there were four uh, disciples of him that were considered as the four region, uh, regions. And the, there were two in Rumtek. One was Jamkun Control, the third, and the other one was Jeltsab Rinpoche. And so Jeltsab Rinpoche didn't speak a word of English. Uh, I I went there to deliver the medication and also because I obviously have some training in primary health care, I, I did a little bit of work around there and I had to do, make a survey for a feasibility study to build a hospital for the Swiss government. And so, I mean, there's a lot of little things I did around there. So the day before I left, that means on my ninth day, the, the boss of the monastery, Jamgun Control, called me and, uh, you know, said thank you, make, gave me a present and said, do you have any questions? So I had questions, obviously. I wasn't a Buddhist at the time. But to be honest, I was living just next to the monastery, just outside the monastery because I'm not a monk. But I was given access to 
any place in the monastery and some places that not a lot of foreigners have ever visited. So it's just because I was there and I was working for them. They just said, oh, yeah, you want to see this? You want to see that? Oh, come and see this. Come and see that. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't imagine playing with the dogs of Karamapa if anybody asked me or going on his rooftop uh, looking at his birds. You know, things like this don't happen in life. But, okay, it just happened. So when I asked my questions, he said, oh, interesting questions, but I can't answer them. I don't have time. And tomorrow you have to leave. Because if you don't leave, you're in, you're in jail. So uh, he said, listen, I've got a friend. Actually, it's a brother. Uh, he has a monastery somewhere there. And uh, I suggest you go and see him and ask him. And he speaks better English than me. And uh, he can answer that. So, okay, I went back to Delhi. And uh, I had to do my report for the, for the Swiss uh, corporation. Uh, and after that, I had three weeks to wait the answer of the report. The time it goes to burn, they discuss it and send it back. So one out of the blue, I get a phone call from somebody who says, oh, listen, I was told you wanted to go to Sherabling. Uh, I need to go there too. Would you mind traveling with me? It was a woman. And uh, she said, you know, it's easier to travel as a couple in India because... There's less problem for the for the females over there if you're traveling a couple. And uh, I didn't know the lady. I didn't know Sherabling. I knew, but how she knew about it, don't ask me, because I never spoke to anybody. It was just a suggestion from Jamgun Rinpoche that I go and visit Sita Rinpoche. But, you know, what Radio Gompa, you know, the monasteries, they, they have their own communication system. I don't know how it works, but I mean how she found out that somebody suggested I go there. So yes, and very funnily, the only time ever anybody stole anything from me was on Friday 13th of April uh, 1984 at half four in the morning in the main train station of Delhi when I boarded the train and they nicked the bag with all my papers and all my precious possession uh, while I was taking off my big backpack. But the next day I was in Sherabling and there was a special ceremony, uh, what we call a red hat ceremony. And uh, that's where I met Isa. Uh, yeah, it, it was, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know anything about, uh, about Sherabling or, or about the abbot who was at Rinpoche. And uh, that's where I met Isa uh, on the Master of Discipline's bed uh, next to the only telephone in the whole place. And I had to make a phone call. She had to make a phone call. And we were all waiting for the line to get free because telephone in India at that time was pretty hectic. So that's how we met, how I, I saw her the first time. So may, may I ask uh, Isa, uh, after hearing this wonderful story, how, how, did, how does a woman from southern Spain end up in Sherabling in, uh, in the 1980s? No, that is a, that is a, it was, a, I, I told you I stay until 20 in Spain. And uh, this time it was 75, it was when Franco died at last, 75, 76. And then because um, I was involved in the uh, clandestine, uh, I mean, we were against Franco, we have a group of Trotskyists uh, and everything. So we were involved in politics. At that moment, everything it was like an explosion, yeah. 
And uh, then my boyfriend and me, we decided to leave Spain. Uh, and from this time, and then we went uh, first to France because we know some people there, and then to Denmark. And uh, in Denmark, I lived there for one year in a community they call Christiania. Which is very famous uh, today because it's it's one of the oldest anarchistic communities. So I understand that you were one of the pioneers? No, I think it was already five years uh, on. Uh, they started uh, in the 70s. Uh, it was quite new when I came there and people were very enthusiastic, building houses, making things. So I have the, the chance to go there and ask for a job in the bakery. And they say, yes, why not? So I start living in Christiania and I stay there for a year. So I make many friends. And for me, it was going from, from hell to paradise because, I mean, uh, in Franco's time, everything was repression and censura, ¿cómo se dice? Um, Censored. No, cuando censura. 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 And everything. And uh, there it was everything. Freedom, free love, free drugs, uh, free marijuana, and all these things. So it was a change. Then I also uh, break with my boyfriend at that time. And uh, then I wanted to come to South America. I have my idea, but uh, it didn't happen. What happened when, when I was in uh, Denmark, And this is where the, the common thing we have is that I meet that man, that um, Lama, High Lama, who is Karmapa. Because he came to uh, Denmark to do a ceremony and to meet people. They were traveling in a little bus with many Tibetan monks. Uh, the Karmapa is the highest Lama uh, with the Dalai Lama. You can call him the second He was the Sistine Karmapa. And I was not aware at all what it was a llama. I thought it was a, a animal from South America, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. Uh, I consider that I have some, uh, uh, how do you say, I like it, uh, spiritual life and I have some connections. But when I meet that man, everything just uh, makes sense, you know? And I was not completely aware, but something changed in my life. And then when I wanted to go to South America alone, I, I, I saw that it was not possible. My friends, they were going to India uh, in a truck, in a Mercedes-Benz uh, German truck from the army uh, that they bought it secondhand, and they put a house in the back. In this time, you could go, I mean, you may know, you are a little bit our age, there were a lot of people going to India. I didn't want to go to India because I say, why well, everybody is going to India? But uh, something happened one night, I decided to go. And then I met them in uh, Greece because they were already traveling. And then we did all the road through Tehran. And then we could not go to Afghanistan because the, Rus the Russians, they were there. But they went through Pakistan, Maluchistan, I believe, Quetta, Rawalpindi. And then we got, because of the connection also, one of the English men who were uh, with us and who have another track also, that it was a donation to a Tibetan community. That's it, the connection. It's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's that, like Dharamsala? No. It's near Dharamsala. It's uh, the, the town more near is Palampur. 
It's an only like two hours or one and a half hour from Dharamsala in the same area. But this community was the name, it was Tashiyong. And it was also a very high lama who uh, were there. It was there. And the track, one of the track, it was a present for that community. So uh, because of this, we finished in that Tibetan community. After I stayed there for two, three months, and I find some connection with the Buddhism. I was uh, painting and doing things, and also it was good for me to be there. Then uh, this guy, this English guy, who was also a Tibetan, a, a Tai Chi teacher, he said, we are going to see somebody, some lama, a very young lama, who is building a monastery in the jungle uh, in the nearby. We can go there, maybe sleep there and come back. So we decided to go there. And this time, when we came there, it was uh, Sherab Ling was uh, just uh, 30 monks, children and uh, some adults, but all working. Uh, and then uh, when the project of Sherab Ling started, Situ Rinpoche was given this land near a, a village they called given, Beer. Given this given. land. Yeah. A beer, that it was also a Tibetan community. So it was given this land from the Tibetan community to him to build the monastery. And when he first started, start, he had only a tent in nothing else, in the middle of the jungle, where there were tigers and, and monkeys and everything. So when I come, they already some buildings were there, but very, very, very few. And then when we come uh, and I meet him, I was like a very very strong for me, because uh, Tai Situ Rinpoche is the main disciple of the Karmapa. So after one year that I met the Karmapa in Denmark, I met his, my teacher, his disciple. So the Situ Rinpoche became your teacher? Yeah. He was only 25, and I was 22. Okay? He was very young. His English, he was uh, starting. My English, he was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the connection it was so strong that this same night I decided to stay to stay in the monastery, and I did stay for six years in the monastery. Around the monastery. Around the monastery. Uh, how important is is uh, Situ Rinpoche for both of your lives? What do you mean? How important? It's our teacher. So, in other words, we we it's difficult to say. The respect is so strong that whatever he wishes us to do, we would we would do. But you know, I don't know how to explain that. It's pretty difficult. The if if you're a Buddhist, by definition, you need to find yourself a guru or a teacher. And once you have a guru, there is a connection, and that connection is. I don't know how to explain it. You have to you have to trust. The person, you can change gurus if you don't feel like, or I mean, there, there's no obligation. But once you have a connection, it is very strong. So I don't know. I worked for you see. When I stayed in the monastery, I stayed about eight months around, around there. Uh, I worked for him, and that means that also I was a foreigner and I spoke English, and he was interested in a lot of things about the West. So I did spend a lot of hours talking with him, usually in the afternoons. And so something developed over time. And at, at one point, uh, I don't know, four months there or something like this, whatever, 
I, I asked to take refuge. And then I had to ask three times. But the third time I got it. And then uh, you, you follow whatever advice he will give you. Doesn't mean he will give you an advice. Because, you know, gurus tend to be mirrors, we call them. It's a mirror where you have to look at. And what he does, usually, if you ask serious questions about yourself, he will just bounce it back towards you. Because Buddhist, you have, you have to do your own work yourself. If we go flash forward from there, uh, a couple of years later, both of you find yourselves living in Glasgow. Yeah, but I mean, uh, not a couple. No, we... we Ten years later. We, okay, we met, we met in Sherabling, but then Isa went back home in July. Uh, so we, we, we were, I would say, together without being together, uh, maybe for three months. After that, Isa was going back to see her parents because she used to go back once every year or every two years. And then I stayed there. I was alone. But after some time, we decided that we, we should get together again. And we, we decided to go back to Switzerland because being Swiss and having, having Swiss training, if you want, uh, having, there's no problem for me to get a job in Switzerland. Besides, as an educator, you always get a job because there's always problems. So uh, we went back to we went back to Switzerland and we started living together, and because we both have the same teacher, we ended up being involved in you know Buddhist things in Switzerland, in France, and then uh, after some time we spent we lived nine years in France, just across the border, but still in France, and then uh, we moved to Glasgow because various reasons. And then we lived 15 years in, in Scotland. Yeah, but I understand that the, one of the main reasons that you moved to Glasgow was, was because your teacher was giving a seven-year course there. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. it, it, it's one of the main reasons. There wasn't, there is, I, would, I would suggest there's another main reason. But uh, yes, we, we, we were taking the... It's the core practice of our lineage. And we... We started going to see him because we didn't go to India after that very much when we were in France. So he's coming to Scotland. That was closest to us. And we had two boys. At the time, we had a very good friend, family friend with uh, three girls. And they accepted to look after our boys while, while we were gone for two weeks. So we started going for the course. And then we joined the course on year three. So the next year, year four, we went again. And after that, on year four, we suddenly decided, listen, if we have to come every time a year, it's a lot of logistics. And for us, it costs a lot of money in a way. So uh, why not move? And because I'm British, then living in Scotland is not an issue. And uh, getting a job in Scotland was not an issue neither because my diplomas, I mean, my qualifications were uh, recognized. So I started becoming a social worker for the deaf. And then we started 15 years in Scotland. And then two boys were grown up, went through university, got their master's. And uh, we decided to retire. And Isa, being out of Spain for 35 years, expressed the idea that maybe we could go back to Spain. But actually... Our teacher, our teacher, at one point we went to visit him because from Scotland we would travel back to India again. 
And our teacher one year suddenly suggested that we go and build him a, a center in the north of Spain because somebody gave him 100 hectares of land. And he said, oh, I, I, I was given 100 hectares of land. Can you go and build me a center? And it didn't work out, not because of the teacher, but because of logistics in Spain. So because it didn't work up, he then said, okay, and uh, you just go to Spain and you do whatever you want. And then we came here and we had decided that we would move from Scotland because our mind was done. And uh, so we found this place and decided to make a retreat center up here. Okay, now, now you say we came up here, but can you please describe the place where you live to the people of the podcast, to, to the audience? Well, we live at 2,000 meters in the middle of the National Park of Sierra Nevada, on the south side of it, uh, the, exactly at the, uh, below the Medio, uh, the, the Medio Dia, the midday uh, peak, and uh, facing south, so we can see the Mediterranean all the way down. And even Africa, when the when the light is good, we see the hills of uh, the Atlas, the the Atlas range in the whole horizon at the end. And uh, we're at two thousand meters, meaning that we get thirty degrees max in summer, and uh, the lowest we had middle of the night was minus nine, eleven years ago. Now minus six only last year, and uh, we have a farm small farm of about four hectares and mainly walnuts and uh, since we have bought one or two places with houses so we technically now have four houses that can receive people to do retreat and uh, so we're, just, we're really we're really a retreat center that means we don't give any teachings here people who want to come here they must have their own um, instructions, whatever they are, they can be Catholic, Muslims, uh, Buddhist. I mean, it's unimportant. Uh, the the thing is, we try to offer a retreat place where they can have retreat, and we provide the logistics. You say we don't provide any teachings, but how is that possible? That somebody who is a great speaker as you are, but you also got. Years and years, both of you got years and years of teachings in, in Tibetan Buddhism and in Buddhism in general. So you, you must have a lot to teach, no? The question doesn't, doesn't exist for, for two reasons. The first, I have instructions from my teacher not to proselytize very clearly. So that is one thing. And the second is that... Although I love speaking, and obviously I love argumenting, argumentating, and that's always been my life, uh, I don't feel qualified at all. Because I think, you know, you're on your own. Everybody's on its own. You have to do the work yourself. So what worked for me might not work for somebody else. And I'd rather have somebody with much more experience than me try to influence somebody to do something. I fell in it. I got lucky, I would suppose. I mean, being a Buddhist, I would call it karma. So I must have done some very good things in previous lives to actually have my actual life now because it was a, a real nice doodle. But doesn't give me the ability to tell anybody whatever what to do. 
okay, we had experience. I can tell you about my experience. But it cannot be an instruction for you or for anybody because that was me. Everybody has to find his, I mean, has to answer his own questions and make its own decisions because that's what's life, is it? You make your own decisions. And I would feel really bad if I had influenced somebody to make a decision and that it came and damaged him seriously. Now, I have training, obviously. I have training because of my job. I mean, I did transactional analysis. And if there is one manipulative uh, technique, it's transactional analysis. So, yes, I know a bit how to manipulate. But I would definitely refrain and not do it. Because I would feel really, really bad if I did it. No, but, but when in the professional uh, decisions that you made in life, you, you say they were not decisions. You say it happened to me. But you, you ended up in some of the poorest uh, places on earth. Even when you go to, to Glasgow, I mean, poverty in Glasgow center is... I, I've, I've heard that one third of all the children in Glasgow lives in poverty. So that these are decisions that bring you to places where you can make a change. Yeah, in Glasgow, with the soup kitchen at 10 o'clock at night on George Square, the main square in Glasgow. And, you know, that was one way, for instance, for us to, to give a hand and do things. Uh, it was the free distribution of food to the whoever came, doesn't matter. So, yeah, I mean, you, you always end up doing things for others, or at least we ended up always doing things for others. But, you know, again, it's not really a choice. It's just an opportunity in the sense that, oh, we can do it. We have the means. And so we do it. Why not? Uh, we could go and, you know, do a retreat in a cave, each of us uh, up on the mountain with nobody around. Uh, that would be okay with our, I would say, training and dedication as Buddhists. But you don't have to. It, you can if you want, but you don't have to. We chose to do things that actually are, are useful and helpful for people. And we didn't ever talk about it with Isa, to be honest. But uh, our teacher, his part of his, he would say part of his job, no, part of his duty is to help others. Whatever it can be, med medicine, astrology, teachings, uh, buildings, food, schooling. I mean, one of the main uh, work of the C2s is the education, looking after young children and educating young children. That's one of his main... Uh, he's got a school now with 500 young children, where before there were 10. So, you know, it's difficult to explain. It's not a... Uh, how do you say? It's, it's not a thought decision. It is not a... Uh, it's not something we thought about. It just so happened. We were, we were wired that way and it works that way. Maybe that's why we're together. Talking about children, uh, Isa, uh, so, so you, you have kids living, living in the UK, I believe, living in Scotland. Uh, now our children, they are uh, 38 and 36 <laughs> because we have them for I mean, we meet them 
we meet a long time ago. So yeah, uh, no, they have uh, education in uh, France for 10 years, and then we moved to Glasgow. Uh, for 10 years, they were there. Uh, another five years also, they did the university. And they are engineers uh, in electronic and computing, and they live their own life. How do they regard both of their parents living and hosting a monastery high up in the Sierra Nevada? First, first we have no monastery. I mean, we make it very, very clear with Situ Rinpoche that this is a, just a, a center for meditation, for retreat. We are no monks. There is no monks here. The Lama will come once a year, uh, we try, and then he can give us some uh, teachings and he can do some ceremonies uh, and everything that we appreciate and is very good. But we don't get a lot of people here. Uh, and the most we get maybe is 15 to 20 people if there is an event. But and then we have the little houses where the people, they like to come and meditate by themselves. And this is what we provide. So it's not a monastery. Uh, our children, they have been educated. Mm, not, we didn't force anything, any kind of uh, ideas. We just live what we are. And we want them to live their own experience and their own life. We don't force anything, so they, we still have good relation with them. They come and see us. They help whenever they can. Uh, I don't think they are Buddhist, but they are good humans. That our teachers say the first thing before being Buddhist is to be a good human, uh, and that is important. A good, a good, and a good heart, and they do the things that they have to do, like most of us will try to do. Yeah. That is important. So for us, this is important. So that's it. And uh, for us also, I mean, we have this job to do to educate the children. But very luckily, 12 years ago, they were already finished their studies and they were working. So we were free. And this is where we decided uh, with Cidre Rinpoche to start something in Spain. And for us, these 12 years have been plenty of uh, inspiration. Because we are in the nature, we are in a place that we love it, it's peaceful, and uh, we meet uh, nice people and we do things that we really uh, appreciate. Uh, it's a different thing, but uh, somebody has to do it. And <laughs> I think for us, it's our thing. We love animals. I, I have also a medicinal uh, garden where I have the plants, and the uh, idea is that the Tibetan teacher, uh, doctor, he can come here. He's also an astrologer. He can come here and teach us about how to do Tibetan medicine. And this we discussed with Tom and the wife, Angel, Angela. Uh, and it's something that we really take at heart. You know, it's something that we really want. And we want to do it because this place is very pure, very clear. And let's say if I want to come, if I want to come to your center, how do I get there? Oh, it's secret. We won't tell you. <laughs> no, no, I problem. Uh, we, we, we are, uh, I mean, the next village here is Laroles in the Alpujarra, very near to the uh, Almeria uh, province. But from there, there is a, a road and then uh, there is a forestry uh, track. And it's taking something like 40 minutes to come, from, to come from Laroles. That is the village that is more near. And what is the name of your center? It's Palpung. 
And Palpun means uh, in Tibetan. It's a mountain of excellence. It's whatever is a, a quantity, it's a, it's a amount of excellence. And uh, all the Palpuns, they are, uh, they, they are directed by Tai Situ Rinpoche. And he already have a big in, in India, it was in Tibet, and now there is a little bit everywhere. Yep. So this one we call Palpun Sera Nevada. Uh, there is another center in the north, uh, uh, the name is Sampel, and there is also, we have also some land in the Catalonia. And what, what, what is the future of your center? I mean, long term and short term? That depends on sponsors, yeah. because uh, there, there, there are some, I would say, possibilities to rebuild some ruins that we have on the land that we have. There are always options to buy new land or whatever, but uh, that depends on sponsors because, I mean, we've already did our bit. Now uh, other people should come and do theirs, if you see what I mean. So our hope is that we find preferably a couple, but it doesn't have to be a couple, uh, people who will take up from us because, I mean, we're getting older and uh, it'll be a day, a time where we won't be able to do the work here. So uh, we, we hope that over time people will come like the place and uh, take over. We, the, the, we built legally a community. So does the land, uh, is it owned by, by Sito Rinpoche then? Or by no, no, not they, directly. They... That's what I, say, well, I was going to yeah. say. In Spain, we built, a, we built a legal entity called Community Buddhista Palpung. So uh, Palpung is the generic name. It's the main monastery in Tibet. And as from that on, because under the same guidance of the same teacher, all the centers have Palpung in the name. So we have a community now in Spain, legal, recognized state, uh, as a religious entity that is the Buddhist community Palpung. So that community now has about uh, just under 50 hectares within Sierra Nevada, mostly national park and natural park. So once we're gone, obviously by um, inheritance, the, the little bit we kept for Isa and I will go back to, will go to the community. In other words, it belongs to the community. Now, we built the community with a constitution and we tried as much as we could that our teacher is the boss of the community. But we are in Spain and a foreigner cannot be the boss of a Spanish company. He can if he lives in Spain, not if he lives outside. So it's a little bit of, you know, juggling to protect it so that uh, we don't have problems like some other people have of takeovers from uh, people uh, who are not within the same line put. So for us, the future, it's not ours. We, we're just the caretakers, even if it's in our name for some of it. 
which is the caretakers. Anyway, you know, the day you die, uh, whatever money, whatever beautiful cars you have and all that, you're not taking with you. So uh, <laughs> you have to find somebody to give it to before you leave. It's better because then you control it a bit. Otherwise, then whoever comes first gets it. So future is we hope uh, that uh, it's going to flourish and we don't want it to become big because, again, that's the idea of the retreat center. Uh, it's difficult to find in the West places where you can have a serious retreat, as in the environment of it. In the cities, it's difficult, even wherever you go. Here, it's amazing. I mean, our first neighbor is 20 kilometers from here. I mean, you don't get too much places around where you can get that. So, you know, it's a beautiful thing. The big problem we face is actually <laughs> climate change because it's getting drier and water is a big problem. For the moment, all our land has water. But you never know when it stops. And living up here at 2,000 meters without water, forget it. Yeah. But what we want, I mean, for what you say about the project, I mean, we, uh, Tom, he knows about this. We have a land because when Cito Rinpoche, he came here in uh, five years ago, he really liked one land and told us to, to get it. And uh, we got that land uh, where there is a very nice uh, finca, very nice land and uh, with a lot of water. And there is where we want to do our, our project is like a botanic garden uh, where we can plant the things that they are already here, but also introduce other and also have a, like a education um, proper so the people can know and the children uh, and pass on the tradition because the people used to have a tradition of medicinal plants. And then also the animals, we working together with the shepherd who have 10 mules, 300 uh, uh, sheep, and 100 cows in freedom. So they are in the mountains. And we're working with them and uh, his wife, that is a, a trainer, uh, how do you say? Horse, horse trainer. Horse trainer. We're working with them because there are people from the village who are living in the traditional way. And we want this to be together, that uh, uh, this can continue to be like that. And people can enjoy the nature in a very uh, good way, without harming, just giving as much as they can. And this is our project now with this uh, finca that we got it, like uh, now from three years ago. And we are uh, we have a house there that we already managed that is 30 square meters, uh, but there is a quadra like a horse. How can you call this? Corral. A corral. But walled corral. A walled corral made in the traditional way. And we want to restore this place like a traditional way so the people, they can also stay there. And maybe make a, a little museum or make also like scenes for the people to come and everything. And that is our project now. I like it very much. All all these things that you do on, on that remote piece of land of yours. I see two people who are very social and very fond of communication 
Don't you miss humanity up up there? Don't you miss meeting a lot of people? Uh... No, we, we have people coming here. We have, <laughs> There's we have a lot people, of people no. coming here visiting. But to be we honest, many no, we don't miss that much. No, we have many <laughs> friends. And also another thing we have, we have volunteers. Uh, they are mainly yes. young people that they come from all over. All over uh, the world. And we are happy to that they stay here sometimes one month, sometimes six months. And they learn from us, and we also learn from them. And they come from all over the world. And there are people who have also the same connections. No Buddhists, but the people who love nature and they want to learn. And this, I think, is also very important now for young people to know that there are places like this, and they can have a different way of living, that they don't have to go in the rat race, how they call no? Because many of the young people, they are a little bit... Uh, Lost. Lost and they are upset, you know, because see, yeah, they get the study, they get everything, and then what? Work and make money and buy horses, uh, buy houses and buy uh, cars, and they get uh, very, you know, some of them they are looking for something else, and that I think it can be a little impact in their life, and it's good. And then we have people from the village uh, here. We have a lot of people who work like we meet also this cost. Costco, uh, because we have an ecological um, market now. We are part of an ecological market. We have a lot of walnut. We do also creams and oils and plants. And we go into this market and meet other people and exchange things with them. And this is also something that we only do for the last year. We didn't do before. But then now we, we really like it because uh, we, are, we are also interconnecting with other people who have also the same ideas. And there are few of them in, in the Alpujarra. So we are not uh, alone here. We, we have social life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, beautiful. I want to thank you, both of you, Isa and Humphrey, for your uh, generosity in uh, according this interview. Um, is there a, a last word that you want to share with the, the people listening to this podcast? Uh, people who despair... People who uh, sometimes, when you look at the climate crisis, think, where is all this going to end? Maybe one word of hope? I just say they Enjoy want... life. <laughs> Enjoy the moment. Enjoy life. Yeah. And everybody is welcome to come here and give us a hand. You know, because what the worst is, is just to be depressed or to... Uh, To, to to say that uh, nothing is worthy is uh, I mean anything you work and you do it even if you are planting a tree mm -hmm. or you are looking after horses or after the animals and you are looking mm -hmm. after the earth I think is this what give our more value as humans and uh, this is what we we should do it and uh, everybody is welcome to come here you are very happy. You have been listening to another episode of the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. With us today were Isa Luque Alvarez and Humphrey Mathey. Be on the lookout for our next podcast that should be online within a month. Thank you for listening and I hope we find each other again very soon.